This is Thurman Hayes, pastor of First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. We want to welcome you to this message from our services at First Baptist. We're a congregation that is seeking to touch lives through the life-changing power of the gospel. I pray that you'll encounter Christ in His power and love even now as you listen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for your word, and as we prepare to open it, We pray that your spirit would prepare our minds and hearts. And as we look at the the story of of Christmas in the Gospel of Luke this morning, we pray that you would, by your spirit, uh, cause the text to just explode in our consciousness, uh, help us to see aspects of the story and particularly the good news of the Gospel in this story in a way that perhaps we, we never have. Father, I pray for anyone here today that came in need of just a, a word of hope from you today. pray that you would encounter them, encounter all of us through your word now, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I'm going to ask you to open God's Word to the Gospel of Luke this morning. We are going to look at Luke 2, 1 through 20, the classic story of Christmas, and so turn there in your copy of God's Word, and rather than read the whole text through right now, what we're going to do is I'm going to read every verse as we walk through it and, and talk about this message of Christmas, and particularly how this message is a message of good news, how the gospel of Christ is just interwoven throughout these 20 verses. And let's pray together as we prepare to approach uh, God's Word again. Father, we, we do thank you for the Word. We pray that you would speak to us now through it as we walk through it and show us your good news. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, on April 12, 1961, the Soviet cosmonaut Yuri Gagarin became the first person in space. And so for 108 minutes... Uh, Gagarin uh, was soaring through uh, space, and this was a major public relations victory for the Soviet Union. It's really the event that sort of inaugurated the, the space race between our country and the Soviet Union. And so it was a huge public relations coup for them, but uh, that wasn't enough for the Soviet dictator Nikita Khrushchev who also wanted to proclaim it as a victory for atheism. And so Khrushchev, after Gagarin's flight through space, Khrushchev went before the world's press and kind of stupidly, he said to the press, he said that, I have talked to Yuri Gagarin and he has informed me that I went into space but I didn't see God there. And we now know that Yuri Gagarin actually never said that. In fact, there's some evidence that he might have even been a a Christian believer. At any rate, he never said it. Khrushchev was just lying, as the Soviet officials often did. Um, But this statement, I went into space, but I didn't see God there, prompted a response from the Christian author and apologist C.S. Lewis. And Lewis wrote an essay called The Seeing Eye. 
And in it, Lewis said that we wouldn't see God. If God exists, we wouldn't see him by going up in the air or even into space. Because God, if he exists, would not relate to his creation the way that someone living on the second floor of a building would relate to someone living on the first floor. And in this essay, The Seeing Eye, C.S. Lewis says, as, as only Lewis could, the Russians, I am told, report that they have not found God in outer space. Looking for God or heaven by exploring space is like reading or seeing all Shakespeare's plays in the hope that you will find Shakespeare as one of the characters or Stratford as one of the places. Shakespeare is in one sense present at every moment of every play, but he is never present in the same way as Falstaff or Lady Macbeth, nor is he diffused through the play like a gas. My point is that if God does exist, he is related to the universe more as an author is related to a play than as one object in the universe is related to another. But what if the author actually became a part of the play? That's the message of Christmas. You know, John says at the beginning of his gospel, speaking of Jesus, John says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. The author has come down into our drama, written himself into the play, as he's come to rescue us. That's good news. And we're going to look this morning at four aspects of this good news of the gospel in the Christmas story. The first one is this. The gospel trumps worldly power. The gospel trumps worldly power. We see this in verses 1 through 7. Let's read it together. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Now, on the face of it, this looks like just a naked display of worldly power, right? Because the Caesar, Caesar Augustus, is just sitting in his palace in Rome and with just the stroke of a pen, just the issuing of a decree... This poor couple, 1,500 miles away in Israel, in Galilee, they have to snap to it. And they have to, you know, get on donkeys or go on foot and head down to Joseph's uh, ancestral uh, hometown of his relatives, Bethlehem. Doesn't matter that she's nine months pregnant and about to give birth. The Caesar makes a decree, you got to go. And so it looks like that the worldly powers have all of the power, all of the control in this situation. But wait. 
there was an ancient prophecy that the Messiah was going to be born in the city of David, in Bethlehem. And so Caesar Augustus, although on the outside, it looks like he's the one who has all the power, that the worldly powers are in control. In reality, it's God that's in control. It's God that is causing prophecy to be fulfilled. Because what did the prophet Micah said in Micah chapter 5? But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, and the majesty of the name of the Lord is God, and they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. And so Caesar's decree is doing nothing more than setting up the fulfillment of this ancient prophecy. It looks like the worldly powers are in control. They're not. God is the one with the power. God is the one in control. God is the one who is causing prophecy to be fulfilled. And there's a lesson for us here. Because sometimes when we go through difficult things in our lives that we have difficulty understanding, we're tempted to think that God's not in control of our lives. We're tempted to think that, you know, other, other sources are just chance or bad luck or fate or whatever is pulling the strings in our lives. It is not. God knows what he's doing, and he's doing deeper things to accomplish his will. And the ultimate example of this is the cross. Because if you, the baby born in Bethlehem was going to die on a cross in Jerusalem, and if you were standing there that day in Jerusalem, and you were looking at Jesus hanging on that cross, again, it would appear that the worldly powers were in control. Jesus was arrested by the powers, by worldly powers. Jesus was subjected to a mock trial before worldly powers, before the council. Jesus was beaten and flogged by them and then nailed to a cross. He appears to be helpless. The worldly powers appear to be totally in control to the naked eye. But something's happening beneath the surface. What's happening Jesus on the cross is bearing the sins of all who will trust in him. And Jesus, his death, was going to set up his resurrection and the eventual resurrection of all who trust in him. And so, Christian, when you are tempted to think that, that God is not in control, that, that, that outside forces or the worldly powers or whatever is in control and pulling the strings of your life, stop. God loves you. He knows what he's doing. You can trust him. He's doing deeper things, good things, that are beyond our understanding. The gospel trumps worldly power. The second thing that we see here in this story is that the gospel trumps fear. The gospel trumps fear. Let's look at verses 8 through 10. In the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. 
And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Now the angel could have announced this good news to anyone, chose to announce it to the shepherds. And there's a, a message in that, and it's the same message that is sent by the fact that God chose this poor couple from a backwater town, Nazareth, and Galilee, uh, a couple that was so poor and lacking in influence and prestige that they couldn't even secure a room for her to have a baby. They were common people, and so were the shepherds. And so part of the message here, in announcing this good news to shepherds, part of the message is, and is the same one that is sent in the fact that God chose you know, Joseph and Mary, you know, these, these average common people. And it's the message that we see here in verse 10 that the angel says, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Not just for a certain group of people, not just for the elites, but for all the people. That's part of it. But there's something else going on here. And we see it in, in verses 9 and 10. Again, let's look at it. We see here that this theme of fear runs through these passages. It says that uh, the angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not. Now, in one sense, I mean, it's normal that they would feel fear. This angel is awesome. And we, we saw that last week as the angel appeared to uh, Zechariah, uh, John the Baptist's father, and, and, you know, and to um, uh, Mary. And so both of them, I mean, there's a certain amount of fear. This angel is like this awesome being. And so a certain amount of fear would just be normal in a situation like that. But there's something even deeper that's happening. Because of our sin, we have a certain degree of fear of the holy. This angel is, is holy. And because we are sinners and there's this disconnect between us and God, you know, there's, ever since the sin entered the world, Human beings have had a certain amount of fear of that which is holy. And you can see this going all the way back to Genesis in Genesis 3. So what happens after Adam and Eve sin and God comes looking for them? What do we see here in, in, in the third chapter of Genesis? How do they react? It says the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid. For the first time, they were afraid of God. Now, you know, before sin entered the world, there was certainly a reverence for God, a healthy reverence for him and in all of him, but there wasn't this sense of terror of God. And, and that's, what, that's what Adam and Eve have at this point. And it's because of their sin. And it's because of the disconnect between their sinful lives and the holiness 
of God. You know, you see this in, in Isaiah as well. So when Isaiah, you remember in Isaiah 6, when Isaiah sees the Lord and, and high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple, and there were these angelic beings, the seraphim, they're flying back and forth, and what are they singing? They're singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God. The whole earth is filled with His glory. And the temple is filled with smoke. So what is, what's Isaiah's reaction? Is Isaiah like, oh man, this is cool. You know, I'm going to get my phone out and videotape this, right? I've got to send this to all my friends. No, he is totally freaked out. What does Isaiah say? He says in Isaiah 6, 5, Isaiah says, Then I said, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah says, I am, I love the way the old King James puts it, he says, I'm undone. In other words, I'm ruined. I'm doomed. It's over for me. But it wasn't for one reason, because God had mercy on Isaiah. Just like God had mercy on Adam and Eve. Why? How? It's because he knew that one day there was going to be an atonement. That passage in Isaiah 6 goes on to talk about atonement. As God says to Isaiah, your sins are atoned for. But how are his sins atoned for? Because God knew that he was going to become a human being and that he was going to to take the, the punishment that his own holiness demands against sin and that he was going to take it himself and that he was going to make atonement. That's the only reason that God could have mercy on Adam and Eve and, or Isaiah or you or me is because an atonement has been made. And so because of what Christ has done for us, you know what? Those of us who know him as our Lord and Savior, we don't have to live in terror of God. Yes, we have a healthy reverence for him and an awe for him. That's healthy. But we don't have to live in Jesus' cowering fear and terror of God. You know why? Because Jesus took the terror of the cross on our behalf so that we could be reconciled to God and be at peace with God. And that's the third thing that we see here, is that the gospel brings peace. The gospel brings peace. Let's look at verses 11 through 14. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord, and this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. In the King James it says, uh, Peace on earth, goodwill men. And you know, that's true. One day there's going to be peace on earth. When the king returns, he's going to rule and reign. There's going to be perfect peace on earth. But, but, it, but what seems to have been said here is that God is at peace with those to whom he has been reconciled. 
We need to be reconciled to God. We sung about this earlier, right? God and sinners reconciled. But again, how does that happen? How can sinners like us be at peace with a holy God who hates sin? Paul tells us that in Romans chapter 5. He says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are our reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Reconciliation with the Holy God comes through Christ, and only through Christ. And you know the first step to, to being reconciled to God is to understand that there's a conflict. I've had many conversations with people about the gospel and I've even had some of them say, sometimes they say words that are sort of like this. Sometimes they said these direct words, I'm okay with God. But the question is, is God okay with you? If you don't have a Savior, God's not okay with you. You've got to have a Savior. We're sinners. That sin's got to be taken care of. And either we're going to take the punishment for it ourselves, or we're going to look to one who has taken the punishment in our place. And that's Christ. The gospel brings peace. The fourth thing that we see here is that the gospel prompts response. The gospel prompts response. Let's look at verses 15 through 20. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. Now, Mary, as we talked about last week, is a model of discipleship in the story. But what's often overlooked is that the shepherds are also models of discipleship for us for a couple of reasons. First of all, the shepherds seek Jesus. They seek Jesus. Look at verses 15 and 16 again. It says, When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. There is a forcefulness to the response of the shepherds here, isn't there? They are not content with the knowledge that they already had. They wanted more. And they were forceful about it. They went without delay. They went with haste. They wanted to go and, and see Jesus. You know, Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. Seek first the rule and reign of God in your life. Go hard after God. Don't settle for where you are right now spiritually. 
Don't settle for the the level of the knowledge of God that you currently have. Don't settle for the degree of intimacy with God that you now have. Don't settle. Keep pressing. Keep seeking. Keep seeking to go deeper. Tim Keller tells a story about when he was a student and a young Christian and he was at a, a conference and a um, group of, you know, like college-age students and there was a speaker that was leading this conference, a lady named Barbara Boyd. And she, they did this exercise and she said to these students, she said, um, I want you, she, she, they pointed to Mark 1.17, short little verse, and Jesus said to them, uh, 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 follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Okay? Little verse, it's 15 words, okay? And Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And she said, I want you to take 30 minutes and I want you to write down 30 insights about that verse. And she warned them. She said, don't, put, don't stop after 10 minutes and think that you know it all. You don't. Keep going for 30 minutes and give me 30 insights from that one verse of Scripture. Well, Tim went for about 10 minutes and put his pen down. Thought, I, you know, I've gotten everything that I can get out of this verse. And he looked around and his friends were still writing and he felt embarrassed. And so he picked up his pen again and he said, you know, I'll try to get something else. And so he started to play with it. He started to like, he would take, he would say, what would this, what would this verse mean if I took like one, one of the words out of it? How would that you know, change things. And he began to sort of isolate the different words and sort of analyze it like that. And then he took it and he sort of wrote it out in his own words. And he got several more insights from doing that. Well, at the end of 30 minutes, he had 30 insights. And then she called the group together and she said, okay, now think about the most life-changing of the, most, of the 30 insights that you got, what was the most powerful, the most life-changing to you? And so they thought about that, and then she asked the group, she said, okay, how many of you got the most life-changing insight in the first five minutes? Nobody raised their hand. How many of you got the most life-changing insight in the first 10 minutes? Again, nobody. The first 15 minutes, a few people raised their hands. 20 minutes, a few more raised their hands. 25 minutes, even more Tim Keller said, it changed my life. I, I, I began to dig into the Bible. You know, there's a, a great old hymn that says this about God's Word. Thy Word is like a deep, deep mine, and jewels rich and rare are hidden in its mighty depths for every searcher there seek seek god that that, the shepherds are a model of that second the shepherds not only seek jesus but the shepherds spread the news about jesus the good news about jesus look at verse 17 it says and when they saw it they made known the saying that had been told them concerning the child in the King James Version of, of this, it says that they, they spread it abroad. I love that. It's almost like the image of a farmer with a seed bag, you know, and just sort of casting, spreading that 
good news, casting that seed around. And so when you put these two things together, okay, they were seeking him, they were spreading the news about him. So you put those two things together, what do, you, what do we learn about the shepherds and about discipleship? They were seeking to what? To know him and to make him known. To know him and to make him known. What if you woke up every morning with that goal in mind? Lord, I want to know you, I want to know you a little more today. I want to grow a little more today. I want to, when I go to bed tonight, I want to go to bed knowing, knowing more about you. Teach me more about you. I want to go deeper with you today. I want to go deeper in your word today. Take me places that I haven't been before in my walk with you today. I want to know you better. And then I want to make you known. Because I know you're going to put people in my path that I need to sow seed to. I know I'm going to encounter people today that need your touch, that need a word about who you are. Give me opportunities to make you more known today. We're looking forward to a new year. Hopefully this week we're going to be praying some about the new year and kind of 2016 and kind of how, where we want to go in 2017. I hope, I hope maybe that'll be a grid. Use that grid in your prayers. I want to know him better this year. I want to make him more known to other people this year. Maybe you're here today and you came in not knowing him. You know what? The salvation that we're talking about, it's incredible, but it's a gift. This is not something that can be earned. No, this is something that is offered to you as a gift. Christ came. It was all of his his initiative. It was all of God, all of grace. He came to rescue us. He came to rescue you. But you must respond. You must receive the gift, just like we've received gifts, you know, um, last night or this morning or maybe later on, um, you've got to receive this gift. It comes to you as a gift. There's no battery required. <laughs> There's no assembly required with this gift. In fact, the assembly begins on you when you receive it. When you receive it, God begins to assemble you. He begins to begins to work on you and put you together to be the person he's created you to be. You can know him. Let's pray. Father, we, we thank you for the incredible joy of Christmas. Thank you for the good news of this message. Father, I pray for anyone here today that maybe came into this room not knowing the meaning of Christmas which is Christ. Lord, would you open the eyes of their hearts to see Jesus and to respond to this good news about the Savior by turning from self and sin and saying, Lord, I, I can't do life on my own. I've tried, I've tried this. It's not working. And I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. And I call out to you today. I trust you. I believe you died for my sins and you rose from from the grave. And I turn to you today and receive you as my Savior and King. 
Father, I pray for believers, myself and every other believer here this morning, that you would take us to deeper places with you. As we look forward this week to a new year, would you give us a passion more to know you and to make you known to others? We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're here today and God's speaking to you about a relationship with Him, we would love to talk with you before you leave here today. If God's speaking to your heart um, about this church family, being a part of our family here, uh, we'd love to talk with you. If you're in need of prayer today, we would count it a privilege to pray with you. I'm going to be right here at the front. As God speaks to your heart, you come. Let's stand together as we sing. I hope you've been blessed by this message. Christ is the answer for every need, now and for all eternity. As someone once said, Jesus plus nothing equals everything, and everything minus Jesus equals nothing. Have you trusted in Jesus as your Savior? If not, why not now? His arms are open wide to receive you. It may help to pray a prayer like this. Father, I know that you are holy and that I have sinned and fallen short of your glory. I know that you are a righteous God who must punish sin, but I believe that your son Jesus took my punishment for me, died in my place, and rose from the dead so that I could have eternal life. Right now, I turn to Jesus and trust in his finished work for me. In his name I pray, amen. You know, the Bible says this in John 1.12, To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And that means that if you've received Christ, God has adopted you as his beloved child, his very own son or daughter. Just imagine, Almighty God, the Lord of this universe, the one who possesses all authority in heaven and earth, is now your loving father. You are his child. You say, I love him. How can I honor God with the rest of my life? Well, when you love someone, you want to spend time with them. We get to know God through his word, through prayer, and through his people. I would encourage you to pick up a copy of the Bible and begin to read it. Begin to pour out your heart to him in prayer. And find a church family where the Bible is preached, where Christ is exalted, and where his love is flowing. If you're local, I want to invite you to the church I pastor, First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. I'd love to meet you and help you in your Christian journey. I would love to connect you to some other people who love the Lord and who would love you too. Come to one of our services. Be sure to speak to me before or after the service. Maybe you live outside our area. I'd love for you to write me. My email is pastor at fbcsuffolk.org. Tell me what God is doing in your life. If you have spiritual questions I can help you with, please let me know. We're on this journey together.